All right, the kids are already gone, but I got a story for you kids anyway. It goes like this. Once upon a time, there were three little pigs. <laughs> You've heard this? Three little pigs, they were buddies. There was Pfeiffer pig, Fiddler pig, Practical pig, and they all went about the task of building for themselves houses. Now, uh, Pfeiffer pig and Fiddler pig were both very interested in getting back to their fifing and their fiddling, so they quickly threw up a house, uh, in Pfeiffer's case, made of, uh, made of sticks, in Fiddler's case, made of straw. Uh, practical pig, however, having a uh, little further insight as to, as, as a long-term vision, uh, practical pig built his house made out of strong stuff, made out of bricks, and he was concerned about something that may occur. The others weren't. And he warned his friends about the big bad wolf that lived out in the forest. But did the two playful pigs listen to Practical Pig? No. They, they just danced and played and sang their merry song. You remember that song? Who's afraid of the big bad wolf, the big bad wolf? the big bad wolf. And as the story goes, you know, uh, that big bad wolf actually did come along, and <laughs> he threatened to huff and puff and blow down the house of Pfeiffer Pig, and indeed he did that. And Pfeiffer's pig, being made of sticks, just fell right over. And then uh, Pfeiffer Pig ran off to his friend's house, to Fiddler Pig's house, which was made of straw, and the wolf followed him there. And when they would not let him in, he huffed and puffed, and he blew that house of straw right down. Well, the two scared little pigs ran off to the house of their friend Practical Pig and his house of bricks. And when the wolf got there, he made the same threats, and yet when he huffed and he puffed, he could not blow down that house of bricks. But desperate and hungry as the wolf was, he climbed up on the roof and came into the house via the chimney where he fell into a pot of boiling water. And the threat eliminated the three pigs lived happily ever after, especially Practical Pig, who got to charge rent to his two friends. And the moral of the story is, it pays to build your house right. Now, Jesus tells a similar story, but instead of pigs, he uh, spoke of men. And instead of a pneumatic wolf, he spoke of floods and trials, the floods and tr of trials and testing, storms that come our way. But the point's the same. The point is, build a good house. You'll be glad Someday that you did. And Jesus says the most critical difference between the houses of which we read in Luke chapter 6 is where they were built. I forgot to read it. We should read it, don't you think? Luke 6 verse 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. And when a flood occurred, the torrent burst against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who is heard and has not acted accordingly is like a man who built a house on the ground without any foundation. And the torrent burst against it and immediately it collapsed. And the ruin of that house was great." 
So the point, the same really as the three little pigs story, but with a little different focus. Jesus here says the most critical difference between the two houses is not really what they're made of, but what they are built upon, where they are constructed. The good house has a solid foundation. The bad house has none. But until the day of testing, the two houses may appear to be and seem to be identical. But Christ says that there is a storm coming. And you might enjoy that flimsy house that you have built until the day of trouble. You may sing like the two pigs did, who's afraid of the big bad wolf, who's afraid of the big bad storm, who's afraid of a big holy God, who's afraid of judgment day. And you think somehow you may get by with a house that is built on sand. But the Scriptures tell us the storm is indeed coming, and that house built on sand will not resist the winds and the rains and the floods. The storm hits. It hits the same at both houses. One house stands, the other falls. The same trial and the same test comes, hits two persons. One person stands and grows stronger. The other is destroyed. What is the difference? The Bible tells us it is the foundation. And Jesus says, this is the good foundation. This is the foundation on which to build the hearing and the doing of the word of Christ. The hearing and the doing of the word of Christ. Many, some of you, I'm sure, have built your life on a foundation of human ideas maybe of human relationships, maybe a foundation of emotion, even rooted in religious experience. But if you build on any of these things, when the big bad wolf huffs and puffs, he is going to be able to blow that house right down. Luke, verse, Luke chapter 8, verse 13, in a different parable, the Lord says, those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, that is, hear the word, receive the word with joy, but they have no firm root. They have no foundation is the other metaphor. They believe for a while, and in time of temptation, that is, in the time of the storm, they fall away. So the point of the parable is simply this. You must build on a solid foundation. So we begin today to consider how to build on that solid foundation. And the central verse for our study, verse 47, which says, Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts upon them, I will show you whom he is like. Everyone who comes to me, hears my words, acts upon them. How do you lay a good foundation? What do you do as a Christian? You come to Christ, you hear his word, and you practice it in your life. Now, that's not tough to understand, is it? That's not complex. But that's what it's all about. That is how you lay the good foundation. That's how you build an enduring house. And since you want an enduring house, we want to consider together our three steps. The first of which is come unto the Savior. The first thing a builder must do, says Christ, is come unto him. This is where it all begins. And Christ here speaks of that initial step that initial experience, spiritual experience, that we commonly refer to as conversion. Jesus often in the gospel says, come unto me. And to describe conversion in this way is to indicate that conversion involves a departure from one thing and a coming to another. It is a movement of the soul. 
To come, one must also leave. And just so, the call to conversion is a call to leave where you are. It is a call to abandon that place of sin. And then it is a call to move from there unto Christ. Jesus says, come unto me. Come unto me. Conversion in the Christian sense is not the taking up of a code of ethics. It's not the adoption of a particular religious system. It is coming to a person, that person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, come to me. And that same offer is made today. Come unto Christ. Now, you cannot come unto a dead man. It would be nonsense to say this today if Christ Jesus were no longer alive. But he is ever alive, and those who come to him, as most of you know, find him to be a loving and a living Savior. Now, you may well say, well, pastor, how do I come to Christ? I mean, he's ascended to the right hand of the throne in heaven. I am here And, of course, we're not referring to a physical coming at all. Walking an aisle in a church doesn't do it. Jesus is no more present here than he is in the back of this sanctuary. How does one come to Christ? Well, I can think of nothing which depicts it better than that of a wedding. You may come to Christ as a bride comes to her, excuse me, as a bride comes to her husband. And how does she come? How does she come? She comes walking down that aisle, coming to her man with faith and with love, trusting that he will be a provider. She comes bringing her devotion, her allegiance, her affection. She says, I do, and she says, I will. She gives herself to her man, this man whom she has really just begun to know. So let us come to Christ. He awaits us at the altar. He promises us his faithful love. Coming to him, we enter into a relationship that has no end. Have you come to this Christ, really? Or was your conversion just a decision to take up religion or to be a better person? Did you come to Christianity or did you come to Christ? Now, I'm going to go on. But there's no point in that if I leave you behind here. There is no foundation without this. I invite you now to leave your sin, whatever that may be. Leave your self-righteousness. Leave the idols of your heart and of your mind. And come to our Savior. Make the Savior your Savior. Make the Lord your Lord. Come here and do. We're going to be on that second critical element of the three for some of the rest of the most, well, the rest of our time today. We're going to focus on the here element. We'll talk about do next time. Jesus says, the wise builder hears my word. Having come to Christ, what then? Well, you become his student. You hear his word. It is by so doing that you lay a good foundation. But again, one may ask, well, how do you hear Christ's words today? I mean, really, plenty of people consider themselves disciples of Christ, but they have no idea how to actually be one. Praise God that he has given us a book. We have, brothers and sisters, the word of Christ. We have the words he spoke as a man on earth. 
Beyond that, we have the words that he gave us through Moses and David and Isaiah and Luke and Peter and Paul and John. All Scripture is inspired by God. All of it is the Word of Christ. So what it means to hear Christ's Word today is to give attention to His Holy Word, the Scriptures. This is our foundation. We sing how firm a foundation is laid for your faith in God's excellent Word. And that idea, it's not taken from the hymn, but it's taken from the words of Jesus right here. The rock of which he speaks is the Word of God. Paul wrote this in Ephesians 2, verse 20, that we as believers, as the church, have been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. The foundation of the apostles and prophets for us means their written word. You want to build a good house? This is the only foundation, brothers and sisters, the teaching of Christ. Now, the early church laid hold of this idea right away in Acts 2.42. The first thing that we read about the church doing is it says that these new believers were devoted to the apostles' teaching. A disciple then is first of all a learner. He is one who sits at the feet of the Savior. And this is basic. This is basic. This is basic. As incredible as it may seem, as astonishing as it may seem, multitudes somehow have missed this basic point. And whatever their Christianity involves, it does not involve being a student of Christ's words. How can that be? I would say with the prophet Jeremiah, let my eyes be as fountains to weep over the condition of God's people. I read here that this is the foundation, and I look out at a a church that manifests colossal ignorance of the word of Christ, at a church that does not perceive that to even be a problem. I read Hosea 4 and verse 6, where God says, my people perish for lack of knowledge. And then I read in the Gallup survey of religious Americans that 70% of Protestants do not understand what it means for Jesus to be the Son of God. I read, my people perish for lack of knowledge. And I read that half of Protestants cannot recall even five of the Ten Commandments. And this is not an academic concern, brothers and sisters. This is a pastoral concern. God did not say, my people are ignorant because of lack of knowledge. He said, my people, what? They perish for lack of knowledge. Where Christ's word is not heard, where it is not taught, where it is not studied, people are perishing. The word of God, it is our food. Without it, we grow weak. Without it, we die. It is our foundation. And without it, we get tossed and turned by every wind of doctrine. And it is our sword. Without it, we are beaten by the forces of our enemy. Jesus said in John 17, 17, as he prayed to the Father, Sanctify them, that is my disciples, in the truth. Your word is that truth. There is no substitute for it if you want to mature. Fellowship alone will not do it. Exciting worship will not do it. The foundation is the teaching of our Lord. In fact, 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 10 (coughs) speaks of those who will be judged because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. 
the entirety of God's word, screams to us, you must know the truth. And then Jesus offers this wonderful word in John chapter 8, verse 31. He spoke to the Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. You will know the truth, and the truth, say it with me, will make you free. Without it, you are not free. You are bound. Without it, you are in peril. You are weak. You are perishing. Without it, your life has no real firm foundation. Now, incredibly, many people will poo-poo the need for biblical knowledge. They say things like, I don't really like all that doctrine stuff. I just, I just love Jesus. God deliver us from that. Jesus was a theological teacher. C.S. Lewis tells a story about uh, after he spoke in a certain context, uh, he had an encounter with a man who had been an Air Force officer, and Lewis had given a talk on theology, and the man rose up and said, I've no use for all of that, but mind you, I am a religious man too. I know there is a God. I have felt Him out there in the desert at night, the tremendous mystery. And that's why I don't believe all of your little dogmas and formulas about Him. To anyone who has met the real thing, they all seem so petty and pedantic and unreal. And I love the response that Lewis gives him. He says, now in a sense, I quite agreed with that man. I think he may have had a real experience of God in the desert. And when he turned from that experience to the Christian creeds, I think he really was turning from something real to something less real. In the same way, if a man has once looked at the Atlantic from the beach and then goes and looks at a map of the Atlantic, he also will be turning from something real to something less real. But here comes the point. The map is admittedly only colored paper, but there are two things you have to remember about it. In the first place, it is based upon what hundreds and thousands have found out by sailing the real Atlantic. In that way, it has behind it masses of experiences just as real as the one you have from the beach, only while yours would be a single isolated glimpse, the map fits all of those different experiences together. In the second place, if you want to go anywhere, the map is absolutely necessary. As long as you are content with walks on the beach, your own glimpses may be far more fun than looking at a map, but the map is going to be more use than walks if you want to get to America. Now, theology, Lewis says, is like that. Oz Guinness, seeing the problem I've described, writes this. Many Christians today, if they know what they believe, don't know why they believe it, they do not have a solid sense of theological foundation. For some reason, many people today think that having a good theological foundation is nothing more than intellectual elitism when the simplest Puritan plowman would have been expected to have a basic theological knowledge. It was basic to discipleship then as it should be today. And Guinness says, sometimes I think if the letter to the Romans were written to the average church in our day, they would dismiss it as being overly intellectual, end quote. I fear we dismiss as academic that which Christ calls the foundation of the Christian life. We are fools to build on sand and making excuses for our truthless religion. Maybe you're wondering what this has to do with hearing the words of Christ. Friend, Jesus taught doctrine. Jesus taught 
ethics. I'm not calling on you to read something like Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, but I am calling you to get your nose in God's Word and learn it. The Word of God, it is the foundation. It is the basis for our beliefs. It is the basis for our actions. Those who deny the truth of the Bible have no foundation. Religious liberalism is groundless sentimentality. Without a word from God, (coughs) there is no foundation in your life. You build on anything else. You build on sand. Watch out for the storm. Watch out for the storm. The truth of God alone is the rock. Build right there. Why? The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God abides forever. The truth does not change. It is not shifting sand. Simply stated, why does the Christian build on the Word of Christ? Who builds on the Word of Christ? Why does he stand beyond the storm? It is because the Word of Christ itself stands beyond the storm. Jesus had the audacity to say this in Matthew 24, 35. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Donald Hustad wrote a hymn on this thought. He writes this, The Bible stands like a rock undaunted mid the raging storms of time. Its pages burn with the truth eternal and they glow with a light sublime. The Bible stands like a mountain towering far above the works of man. Its truth by none ever was refuted and destroy it they never can. The Bible stands though the hills may tumble. It will firmly stand when the earth shall crumble. I will plant my feet on its firm foundation. The Bible stands. The Bible stands. And Martin Luther wrote, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. Praise the Lord. Stability in life then will never come from emotionalism. It will never come from traditionalism. It will never come, certainly not from materialism. Riches come and riches go. Emotions flutter about in the wind. People fail and people falter. That's why we must cling to an unchanging rock. Paul says, hold fast to the word of life. Build your life on the great truths about who God is, the great truths about what he has done for us, the great truths about what he has promised to his people. You sink your house into these foundations, brothers and sisters, and then let the winds blow, the wolf huff and puff, and the storms rise. Your house will not be shaken. So the Lord says the wise man digs deep and lays his house upon the rock. John chapter 8, verse 31 again. If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you an uptight religious person. (laughs) The truth will set you free. 
When I was 18 years of age, a change in churches led to a change in my attitude toward the scriptures. The Bible at that time of my life became my meat and my drink and my spiritual life began to shoot up like a rocket. And what changed my values, what strengthened my will, what corrected my thinking and gave me a new boldness was the study of God's Word. Remember about a year and a half, two years after this scriptures had been used of God to reform and remake me, and I went to visit uh, an old neighbor of mine who had a son my age as well, and this, uh, this neighbor had given himself very generously to the church in which I grew up, especially focusing his energies on the youth ministry there, and I, I went to him simply to say thank you for his service, to let him know something of the fruit that his sacrifices had borne in my life, and uh, he began to tell me how about eight months before he had gone to a conference, at which conference he came to understand for the first time in his life, mind you, he was in his 50s at this point, he said he came to understand for the first time in his life how important that reading and learning the scriptures are to the Christian's life. And he began to grow in new ways in his 50s. And I remember thinking to myself, well, thank God that he has come to this awareness but I also remember groaning within that a man of his age in church all of his life could have missed such a basic fact for so long. Thank God that you are hearing it now if you have not heard it before. You are hearing it now. If you're a new Christian, if you're a young Christian, I can think of nothing of more lasting importance for your spiritual life than to make a regular practice of reading the word of Christ and Scripture with an eye, of course, towards obeying and practicing it. If you find that hard, I can only explain that it is hard because Satan wants very much to keep you from the Scriptures. The word of God is the sword of the Spirit, and your spiritual enemy would much prefer you to engage him unarmed. A.W. Tozer writes this, Whatever keeps me from my Bible is my enemy, however harmless it may appear to be. Whatever engages my attention when I should be meditating on God and things eternal does injury to my soul. Let the cares of life crowd out the Scriptures from my mind, and I have suffered loss where I can least afford it. Let me accept anything else instead of the Scriptures, and I have been cheated and robbed to my eternal confusion." Sadly, so many conclude they just don't have the time to include Bible study in their busy schedules. Maybe you try it. Maybe you rush through your reading so that it becomes of no particular usefulness to you. Do you really have no time, no time to lay that strong and solid foundation? Do you really have no time to dig deep and plant your house upon the rock? Does not the word of the one you call master the word that we meditate on the day, lay you low and send you to your knees crying, Lord, forgive me. Or has persistent disobedience rendered your heart so callous for so long that you just want to go home and forget the whole thing? How are you building 
your house? How are you laying the foundation for your spiritual life? Have you come to Christ? Are you hearing his word? Do you read that word daily? Do you study it? Are you putting yourself under the regular teaching and instruction of that word? Or does your religious life consist of making ornaments for a house that lacks foundation? Again, John 8, one more time. If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. You will know the truth and the truth will make you free. And you will have a foundation such that when that big bad wolf comes around, you will rejoice that you built your house well, for the storm will beat against it and will not shake it. I've quoted many writers today in the last few minutes because their testimony so resonates in my soul. So much is well like David's. I encourage you maybe to go home today and read through the 119th Psalm, which is a celebration, David's thoughts on the Word of God. You have a cloud of witnesses, brothers and sisters. And I close by quoting one of my favorites from John White, who wrote a book back in the 70s called The Fight. And in it, he wrote this as a way of personal witness. He says, I wish to let a wild, warm enthusiasm flow from my heart down my arm to flood from my pen onto the paper. Bible study has torn apart my life and remade it. That is to say that God, through His Word, has done so. In the darkest periods of my life, when everything seemed helpless, I would struggle in the gray dawns of faraway countries to grasp the basic truths of Scripture. I looked for no immediate answers to my problems, only did I sense intuitively that I was drinking drafts from a fountain that gave life to my soul. Slowly as I grappled with textual and theological problems, a strength grew deep within me. Foundations cemented themselves to an otherworldly rock beyond the reach of time and space, and I became strong and more alive. If I could write poetry about it, I would. If I could sing through paper, I would flood your soul with the glorious melodies that express what I have found. I cannot exaggerate, for there are no expressions majestic enough to tell of the glory I have seen or the wonder of finding that I, a neurotic, unstable, middle-aged man, have my feet firmly planted in eternity and breathe the air of heaven. And all of this has come to me through a careful study of Scripture. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's go to prayer. And I invite you to pray with the judgment day honesty, what's on your heart, but especially ask God if there is amendment to your life that you need to make to go back and strengthen that foundation, to lay that foundation, to build your life more thoroughly on the rock that is provided for us in the word of our Savior. Let's pray. Musicians can come up and in a few moments we'll sing our prayers together. Oh, Father, what, what would your Spirit speak to us now? 
We thank you, Lord, for the living and abiding word that you've provided for us. We pray that you would come and direct us as to how to make that the core of our existence, our strength, and our foundation. Forgive us for our neglect of your gift. And God, we pray that we would walk in faithfulness to the simple exhortation of Jesus to come unto him and hear his word. Lord, next week we're going to talk about doing it. And that's a challenge of itself. But we pray that we would walk faithfully before you, reading and hearing and learning and then loving your truth. Help us, Father, in our homes to keep that word central, that our children might grow up with this truth inculcated in their soul. And, Father, may our fellowship be sweetened by the truth of Scripture that as we speak to one another, your word would be prevalent and present in every conversation. God, we love your gift. We would reach out and receive it and take it and live by it more faithfully from this day forward. And for these graces we ask in Jesus' name, amen.